0: Let us now together open God's holy word to the gospel according to Matthew. We'll read from chapter 23, verse 29 to chapter 24, verse 14. And the text will be the last part of our reading, beginning at verse 3 to the end of verse 14. So, we read the Word of God in Matthew 23, beginning at verse 29. "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets.' Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. "'Whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. "'Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. "'O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets "'and stones those who are sent to it. "'How often would I have gathered your children together "'as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, "'and you were not willing. "'See, your house is left to you desolate, "'for I tell you, you will not see me again.' until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. After the sermon, let us sing together hymn 15, the second stanza. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you think of the annual Christmas celebration, you will realize that we pay a great deal of attention to our Savior coming into the world, coming into the world, you could say, in the flesh. But that's not the only coming we should think about when it comes to our Savior, because we also have actually another celebration, which thankfully you could say takes place far more frequently, namely the Lord's Supper, which also reminds us that really we are still waiting for the coming of our Savior, for really the coming of our Savior into our human flesh from the Virgin Mary was just one phase in our Savior's coming, for then He came in humility He laid aside His heavenly glory, He took on a human form, He became a servant, He humbled Himself even unto death. At the same time, the Lord's Supper reminds us that we are longing for the coming of our Lord in glory, to judge the living and the dead, and to bring in then the new heaven and new earth, really to complete His work of redemption and restoration. In that respect, The church can even be portrayed like a bride waiting for the bridegroom to appear. But the question that is bound to arise is, well, when will this be? As we could read in our Scripture reading, this is also the question that the disciples posed to our Lord Jesus Christ after He had responded to their remarks about the beauty of the temple, saying that that temple would be destroyed not one stone would be left upon another. That they connected the destruction of the temple with Jesus' coming in glory, that they identified these events is evident in their questions. When will these things be, and what will be the signs of your coming at the end of the age? It's understandable that in their mind they would associate and connect these two events because for them it would require such a major upheaval to have that beautiful temple destroyed. It happened once before, of course, when the Babylonians came, and they finally raised it to the ground, you could say, in 586 B.C. But also then you could say that had been seen as kind of an end-of-the-ages event, but if this was going to happen again, surely that was the end of it all. That would be when the Savior would come in the fullness of His glory and majesty— But when we look at our Lord's response, we see how He separated the two questions. Because the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem would not be the end of the world. And there was a need to be instructed in this, lest they be deceived and led astray when that did happen. And such instruction, you know, continues to be important for us also today. Because even though we are long past the stage when the temple was destroyed, there still is no shortage of people, both in the church and both outside the church, which have their end of the age, sky is falling kind of scaremongering. And the way they talk, they they kind of become magnetic, and people are kind of attracted to them and think, well, they must be telling the truth. They know where it's at. So, in that way, we have to always be alert. And therefore I proclaim to you this morning, see to it that no one leads you astray about the end of the age. For critical is not calamities in the world, or secondly, the tribulation in the church, but the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. So again, see to it that no one leads you astray about the end of the age. And then we begin to look at our first point. That we should not be alarmed by the calamities in the world. Now, as we begin to work out this first point, we should keep in mind that the conversation of our Lord with His disciples was kind of shaped by His words about the destruction of the temple. If you know a bit about the subsequent history, of course, this is not recorded for us in the Scripture, but we know this from history, from other sources, that this prophecy was actually fulfilled in the year 70 AD, the Jewish people again had rebelled against the Roman overlords. Had done it a number of times, but this had become quite a, a great rebellion. But the Romans eventually got their act together, you could say, and they suppressed that rebellion. Now, a rebellion like that, of course, does not happen overnight. It would have begun with a little rebellion here, maybe a blockade here, a blockade there, and certain slowly but surely this thing kind of began to magnify and increase. And in this whole process, if you read a bit about that history as well, various people would present themselves as Christs, that is, as Messiahs, claiming that they were now going to set the people free. The time had come for the great restoration of the nation of Israel. And of course, that when these people have a bit of success, you can see how people quickly began to follow them, and many people followed them to the bitter end. Now, Rome also was faced with constant revolt in other parts of its territories, often conflicts they had to contain, so there wasn't only the problem there of the struggle in Jerusalem and, and, but, by the Jews, but also often after Caesar died, and especially after the death of Caesar Nero, there was quite a struggle for succession, there was upheaval in the empire. So, you see how, how that next 40 years, you could say, would be a time when there would already be many wars, there would be rumors of wars, all kind of conflicts between peoples. And so, we have this kind of man-made calamities, warfare, but also there would be times of natural calamities. The ancient world had plenty of times when there were famines. We read about it in the Old Testament time. We also read about it in the New Testament times. For example, in Acts 11, verse 29, such a famine took place in the days of Claudius, and besides that, that part of the world we you know is also subject to many different earthquakes. So all these kinds of things happen. Now there would be people who would refer to these natural calamities of famines and earthquakes, and to the man-made calamities of war and conflict, as signs of the end of the times. But the Lord Jesus put it all into perspective, and He said, "Well, but these are just the beginning of." The birth pains. Note how he says that they were the beginning, you know, parents who have children, especially the sisters. Perhaps as a man, I shouldn't talk about these things except as a father who has seen his wife go through these things, but sisters who go through the labor process, the birth process, they, they know very well that, that labor is a process. It's not that one moment the woman gets the inclination the child's going to be born, and the next moment it is there. That does not happen that way can be a very long process for some sisters, very painful process. So, but that, that first indicator, okay, that indicates the birth is about to happen, but it's not there yet. So, don't confuse the first birth pains with the actual delivery. If a mother goes to the hospital on the first twinge of pain, the hospital will say, well, just go back home for a while because it's not there yet. It's the beginning of the birth pains. Now, as we hear, Our Lord described these various calamities as the beginning of birth pains. Of course, that does impress upon us that they are an indication of the eventual coming in glory and the end of the world. We do well to keep that aspect in mind. For each war, even to this day, each war, each famine each earthquake, all these kind of disasters, even as we heard about the disasters in the past few months, for example, in in Australia, all those fires, those those fires we had in Alberta, Fort McMurray a number of years ago, they're all indications, they're all twings of birth pangs that the eventual delivery is going to come, you could say. Or you could even compare it to the way a thunderstorm will come. You know, you hear, sometimes you see the clouds in the distance already, and already here you can begin to hear the rumblings, and you know something terrible is going to come. But, of course, the thunderstorm is not there yet. And so it had to be realized, of course, and the Lord Jesus was talking about this in connection with the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, that that destruction was not the storm But all these things, they were simply the beginning of the indications that eventually the end would come. But critical here, they do not give any sense of a timeline and the completion of that timeline. And so the Lord's message to his disciples was, don't be led astray by those who say, well, this is it. This is it, you know, we have this conflict with Rome, or we have this famine, this earthquake. You know, it's here. Christ is here. No, don't be misled by that kind of talk. Now, these warnings continue to be needed to this day. For throughout history, there has been no shortage of doomsday prophets. You know, when the Roman Empire collapsed just after around 400 A.D., the barbarian invasions that came over the Roman Empire and reshaped the whole map of Europe and things like that, for many it looked like, well, this was the end of the world, the world that they had known. The Roman Empire, with a degree of stability, was, was suddenly gone, and all kind of new little kingdoms popped up over the place. Around the year 1000, people thought, well, now this is the end of 1000 years that spoken about in the book of Revelation. This must be close to the end of the world. When the Black Plague came over Europe, in the 14th century, and estimates are there that from 30 to 60 percent of the population, of a total population of maybe 75 million died, many people thought, well, this is doomsday. This is the end of the world. It's interesting, too. You know, after the First and Second World War, many thought, well, well, things have been so bad, so terrible, so many wars, and then add to that how the people of Israel were given again, the nation of Israel, was reestablished in 1948. then then people thought, well, this is an indication. We're almost there. Christ is about to return. And then, perhaps here I would speak more to the generation that might recall the 70s and the 80s. I suspect there is a significant number that will identify with that generation yet. When there was that tension between the Soviet Union and separated from the West by the Berlin Wall and the Iron Curtain and the West, you know, then people thought, oh, Soviet Union, they talked about that as Gog and Magog taking terms from the prophets Ezekiel and things like that. Well, then when you had those conflicts and the resurgence of, of the Muslims after the revolution in Iran in 1979, they thought, well, well we're here almost at the time of, of Armageddon, of the final battle. And, and the amount of literature that was produced at that time was just phenomenal. Maybe some of the generation that grew up at that time might still even have some of those books on their shelves by a Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth. And he predicted that the end of the world was going to come somewhere, but when he was wrong, he'd publish a new book and give a revision again. You know, that's how they go when it doesn't quite pan out. You just publish another book and you revise your figures and you sell a few more books. Good business. Maybe even in more recent times, there was a series of books called the Left Behind series. I wonder if any The youth have read those kind of books, even I think was turned into some kind of uh, TV series, left behind. All these kind of ideas because then they work in with the whole idea of a rapture and things like that. But the end of the world, they say, is almost here. And if you have ever experienced Jehovah Witnesses and talked with them a little bit, of course, they've also been experts in date setting a number of times. They said that was going to happen 1914, and they said, yeah, the First World War was an indication of that. But then, of course, they had to reinterpret it somewhat, and then they make some more different dates. Lots of groups that figure they know the date when Jesus is going to come again based on what's happening in the world. And you see, to this day, anytime there is a new level of conflict in the Middle East, you can be sure there will be new books being published that will say, now we're almost here. And again, some author makes lots of money all to be proven wrong again, of course. That's the religious version. And then we have our secular version. Of course, they put it all in secular terms as they, they speak of our planet being in grave danger. A number of people have said 14 years. They have 14 years left at the most. They said that 14 years ago, mind you, but now they say it again. And so, we better follow them, because if we do not follow them, it's going to be the end of the world. And so, we are being bombarded with the sky is falling type of people. When I say sky is falling, I'm sure the children somewhere in their early years have heard mom and dad read a book like Henny Penny. The sky is falling. Acorn fell on her head. She thought the world's going to come to an end. All kinds of animals follow her, till the king finally says, there's only an acorn. Don't go too crazy about that. But, but people today, they kind of think, oh, the sky is falling, and it's going to be the end of the world, and we better follow these people because they, they will be able to save us through all this calamity. Now as I speak about that, of course, we should always realize that when these people talk about the climate issues that we have to deal with or environmental issues, we can criticize some of the methods and some of the language that they use, but that does not take away from the fact that, yes, we should as Christians always be concerned about the world in which we live we should be responsible stewards of God's creation. That's always important to keep in mind. You know, we can mark the methods, but there is a basic principle there as Christians we should be aware of. Be good stewards, but at the same time be sober and realistic and realize that wars and famines and natural calamities, temperature up, temperature down, who knows what it is? Temp- CO, sea levels up, sea levels down. Well, these are all indications of the eventual end of the world when Christ will come in glory, but they do not give us a timeline. They are all part of the birth pangs, indicating eventually there will be a delivery, but the time of deliverance is not yet here. You need to be right-minded about this, brothers and sisters, because as one person said, The godly are always prone to think that evils have reached their utmost limit. We can be a little gullible, you know, also interpreting. We say, it's never been this bad in history. Oh, no? Have we lived through all of history in person? Have we read enough books to figure that out? If you read books about history, you think it might be bad today. Morally, for example, different calamities, but really... Is it any worse today than it was 500 years ago or 1,500 years ago? You should always be careful in that kind of terminology. So, don't be gullible. Be led astray. And so, as the disciples were told not to be led astray by those who would claim to be Christ's interpreting events as the signs of the end, we also should not let ourselves be led astray by those who tell us they know how to read the times and that the signs are that the end of the age is almost here. As the Lord Jesus also explained, if you keep reading in the particular chapter, no one knows the day or moment, and He will come like a thief in the night. And really, brothers and sisters, if at some point you have become kind of enamored with that kind of date setting and time figuring out, Maybe if you have those kind of books on your shelf, I would recommend you get rid of them right away. Don't let your children get confused by those kind of things either. If you take it up those kind of movies, the left behind kind of stuff, get rid of it. And if climate alarmists are getting you wrapped in a knot because you think their prophecies are about to come true, well, continue to be a good steward of God's creation, but don't lose sleep over their fear-mongering. All these things are simply the birth pains of the end but they don't really tell us how close we are to being delivered. Now, as calamities in the world don't help us to see how close the end is, neither do the tribulations of the church. That's our second point. When we talked about these different calamities, well, they are experienced in the world in general, all mankind experiences them. But now we want to think more about also what the church in particular experiences. Where our Lord Jesus Christ had spoken several times about the fact that there would be persecution and hardship. He pointed out that the servant in this respect was not above the master. If they hated and persecuted the master, then the followers could also expect the same fate. For those who follow Jesus have to be ready to take up their cross that is, to be ready to endure suffering for His sake. Ridicule, times in history, outright persecution to the point of imprisonment and even death. So, be ready for suffering for the sake of the gospel. I'd actually have to ask ourselves if we are sufficiently aware of this aspect of the inevitable suffering for Christ's sake. And if we are always honest enough, even to think about it for ourselves, but also to mention it when we speak about the faith to others. You know, perhaps you might think, well, you don't want to put that out in front, that there will be suffering and hardship. Shouldn't we come across that following Jesus will will change your life and make things all easier, make all things better, solve all your problems, those kind of things? You know, we don't really want to talk about the fact that being a Christian is going to bring a new level of hardship into your life, that might not seem like a good sales technique for a person to promote the gospel. You know, imagine if you went to buy a car, and then the salesman said, yeah, you know, when you get this car, it's all nice and shiny, but it's going to be maintenance, there's going to be repair bills, people are going to run into you, and you might slip and slide on dangerous roads, and after a while you think, oh, I don't think I want to buy a car anymore, because the salesman had just talked you out of it. And yet, as Christians… We should be honest and say, if you follow Christ, yes, it is great to be at peace with God through Jesus Christ, but better we realize there will come a new level of difficulty. It's costly because now all of a sudden you have to fight against your old nature, say no to the things that you used to like doing, and say, no, that doesn't belong in my life anymore. I don't want to walk in the way of the flesh. I want to walk in the way of the Spirit. That's difficult. It's difficult to say no to yourself and you're going to face new levels of hostility at work, so you became a Christian. huh? All of a sudden there will be ridicule and opposition, because the world is not just waiting to welcome Christians with open arms. We see there is a resistance to the gospel more and more. We see that kind of picture also portrayed in the book of Revelation. Plenty of examples of the hostility of the world for those who confess Jesus Christ. So, Those are the kind of troubles that the church may face, and they come, you could say, from outside the world towards the church, but they are experienced by the church. Our Lord teaches that the church is not troubled only from without, but also from within. If we think back over what our Lord had taught earlier in His ministry, we are not surprised to hear Him say that many will fall away and those who that there will be those who betray and hate one another. You know, we think of the parable of the sower. Seed falling on different types of soil. Some would fall on shallow soil, some among weeds and thorns and thistles. Then, In one case, well, there would be an initial outburst of faith. It would look so great because they would sprout up so quickly. Shallow but warm soil. Man, what a growth! And yet, no sooner did the heat increase and the heat of persecution would come, and that faith would wither just like that. Or the cares of the world would choke out the seed among the weeds. And further, the Lord, when speaking about the cost of discipleship, had mentioned the need to leave behind, to be ready to do that, father and mother. Recognition that when some in the family turn to Christ, the rest of the family that does not turn to Christ may turn against you. All kind of hardships because one wants to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And besides all this, false prophets would arise from within the flock, Paul wrote about this when he spoke to the Ephesian elders when he was on his way to Jerusalem where eventually he would be arrested. He said, watch out, there will be those who come from within the flock. There will be like wolves in sheep's clothing. Think of the Judaizers that that were in the early congregations, insisting the Gentile believers had to keep the laws of Moses. Now, of course, by saying this, they said, well, maybe we'll be more acceptable to the Jews. You can lessen the hostility of those around you. They would also become those who would deny that Jesus was the Son of God come in the flesh. And of course, you do that. That again makes the message more palatable to the world. Don't, don't tell, expect people to believe this kind of supernatural, miraculous stuff. Just, just say Jesus was a very good teacher. That's good enough. And people will like that. So, you had these people denying the Incarnation. And others who who would try to also speak about the fact, well, if you're a real Christian, then you should deny yourself all kind of food and drink, and you should fast, and you should not marry, you know, kind of an ascetic lifestyle. Of course, the danger was there that these people would come in, and they would give the impression that now we're going to lead you to a deeper level of faith and commitment, a rigor in your faith. And again, perhaps maybe also in this way, by might find some kind of acceptance in in the world. All these kind of methods would come to the fore. Either finding more acceptance in the world or take away the offense of the cross or make it sound like your salvation is something that you can bring about by doing all these kind of things. And as for love growing cold, well think of what John writes in his first letter when he has to stress so much, the love for one another. It seemed to have been the problem among the people that he was addressing that they seemed to disconnect the fact, love for God, and also should stir us up to love for the brothers. And if we don't love the brothers, then we really are the evil one. So these things popped up very early in the life of the church already. Now, we need to keep in mind again the context in which our Lord mentions this, namely the signs of His coming in glory and the end of the age. It might seem that the tribulation from without that the church experience or the troubles that come from within would be a sign that at the end was near. You know, we might even think that things have never been worse in the life of Christianity than it is now. Well, that's not the case. And the disciples needed that reality check lest they be led astray, following false prophets or just giving up rather than seeking to persevere. And we need that reality check. As we have mentioned with respect to the first point, the godly are always prone to think that evils have reached their utmost limit. And we might think that when it comes to the church, the hostility experienced, the internal division within Christianity, the tensions, well, can it get any worse than it is now? Surely, the end must be near. But our Lord teaches us, though, that rather than thinking that these things mean the end is near, we should seek to persevere. For as there will be continual man-made and natural calamities, so there will be continual tribulations experienced in the church, don't waste time trying to calculate whether the time is near. No, simply seek to persevere. But our Lord does not leave it at that. For rather, after making it clear that neither calamities in the world or the tribulations of the church give us a sense of, how, of when the Lord Jesus is coming, He tells us what is critical. And that takes us to our last point, the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. For indeed, it is the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom throughout the whole world that is the key factor to bring about the end of the age. And I draw your attention here to the way that he stresses the whole world. For after all, the Lord Jesus Christ had been busy for a number of years, about three years by this point, proclaiming the gospel that the kingdom of heaven was near. Actually, it was here, he said. But his audience had only been the people of Israel. Now, his presence was an indication that he was establishing the rule of God again in the world because the Lord Jesus Christ had come to defeat the rule of Satan he showed that by being able to to heal the sick being able to to forgive sins to to give new life and, and restore people yeah those kind of things he showed there was a time of liberty of restoration that was beginning in his ministry fulfillment of Isaiah 61 but the good news, however, was not just for the people of Israel, because the Savior of Israel is the Savior of the world. And the Lord had always made that clear. Even when he took Abraham and set him apart, he said to Abraham, and you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And we all have to think a bit further how the Lord Jesus spoke about it here, not the only time, he's spoken already before about many will come from east and west to sit at table with Abraham and many of the sons of Israel will be cast out. But think of how the Gospel of Matthew finishes with what we call the Great Commission. Command the disciples, not just to preach the Gospel further in Judea and among the Jews, no, but to go to the nations, make disciples of all nations. Not just the Jews among the nations, but the nations. That, he had authority for that. He had the authority to command the disciples to do that. Now we should also note carefully how our Lord spoke of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. But proclaiming is publicly declaring and announcing. this is the reality. Whether you accept it or not makes no difference. This is the reality. the kingdom of heaven is being established. You know the idea of proclaiming, that authority in that message also comes out if we think of what John the Baptist. Also did, we often talk about John the Baptist as the herald, and the herald simply went around saying, this is the message I have been given to proclaim. Don't have to argue with me about it. This is the message that is true. Believe it. Respond to it. Royal declaration to prepare for the coming of the King. And to this day, the church proclaims, be ready, for the King is coming. Now, of course, many would reject that proclamation… Only those who respond in faith will be saved. But the key point is, though, that the end will not come until the gospel has been proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, as we hear this, you might even think that it should, be, should have been clear to the early church when they heard that, and thought about that. They must have thought, you know, okay, we'll never see this happen in our lifetime. After all, if you think about the apostles, yes, they did spread out eventually, and as Paul, as far as we know for Paul, he made it as far as Rome, but that seems to be about as far as he got. That's not yet the whole world, is it? And yet, even though we might think geographically they didn't cover every square inch of the world yet, interesting At other points, the apostles will even speak about the fact that the gospel had gone into the world. Paul, for example, writes in Romans 1 verse 8 how the faith of the Romans was proclaimed in all the world. Even though, as we said, Paul himself hadn't even made it there yet at that point, and the furthest he might ever have gotten, we don't even know about that for sure, but the furthest he might ever have gotten was Spain. Romans 10, verse 18, he quotes Psalm 19 and says, God's word has gone forth into the world. So the point there is not so much whether it covered every part of the globe, but the gospel had gone beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. That had happened that sense, no longer restricted to just one nation. It had gone to the nations. But the point in mentioning the spread of the gospel then is not that we now also know what kind of calculators we need to see how close we are to the end. But the point rather is to take our attention away from trying to interpret the signs, trying to make sense out of that. No, the church that is longing for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory, is taught to focus on proclaiming that the King is coming in glory. And while it does that, it does that also in the life of the congregation that tries to do that through its missionary outreach, that time of proclamation will be filled with calamities and tribulation, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Amen.